Want to find the best way to distract a dinner party full of global policy academics with an hours-long debate? Ask them to define what a developing country is. Welcome, everyone, to the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello, and it is my duty to announce time. It's not always the case, but today it is for some political economic real talk on this here international tax podcast. We're looking at new provisions for developing countries in the OECD guidelines with Dr. Inaldo Silva, CEO of Royalty Stat today, working with a rather standard definition of developing countries. We'll explain later in the show. But bottom line here, we're taking a look at the guidelines through the lens of whether the rules represent authentic parity for all countries, regardless of income involved in helping MEs navigate their tax responsibilities amid that guidance. Just to borrow a phrase you'll hear later in the show, we invited Dr. Silva on the show to help us better understand the perspective of developing countries and the challenges they often face in working with organizations like the OECD. In speaking of being taken seriously in a room full of academics, you can earn CPE credits for listening to this podcast. Here's how it works. We're planting three CPE code words through the course of this show. Send all three to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Again, that's all one word, the Fiona Show at xbs.ai, and we'll respond with your certificate. But first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Issuing transfer pricing guidance isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Now it's Paraguay's turn. The country's tax authority recently released Decree 4644-2020, a guidance on transfer pricing rules included in Law 6380. Here's the inside scoop. The decree is effective for fiscal year 2021 and covers companies conducting transactions with related parties located inside and outside Paraguay. The guidance addresses the finer points of transfer pricing documentation, intragroup services, use of the interquartile range, comparability, and application of the sixth method, which is used for export commodities. It also irons out the transfer pricing law related to resident transactions. In particular, if transactions are done with residents in low or zero taxation jurisdictions, it's considered a related party transaction. Practically everything is online these days. School, shopping, your nephew's bar mitzvah. You can add filing your company's tax return to the list, at least in Qatar. The tax authority is accepting returns through a new online portal called Doriba. Sadly, it's not an upload and hit submit kind of operation. It comes with a new set of rules. The tax authority is requiring companies to file the declaration if they exceed a particular threshold amount. How much are we talking? The tax authority hasn't released exact numbers, but it's anticipated to be total assets or revenue of 10 million Qatari Rial or 2.7 million U.S. dollars. Also, the declaration must provide specific related party transactions data and disclose which OECD method was used to show arm's length compliance. Online filing, what's next? An AI that helps you with your transfer pricing documentation? Oh, wait. Our next story is taking us up to the Great White North. Dow Chemicals Canadian affiliate and the Canadian Tax Authority recently resolved their legal dispute. The winner... Dow Chemical. Here's what you need to know. Dow Chemical made various intercompany transactions with foreign-related parties. The Canadian Tax Authority reassessed the 2006 tax year and increased the income for certain foreign-related party transactions, but denied downward adjustment for others. 
However, the reassessment of 2007 did include the downward adjustment. The CRA had agreed to the amount of the downward adjustment with Dow Chemical, but argued they had the authority to deny it. The battle waged over whether the tax authority had, well, the authority to deny the downward adjustment, and we all know the outcome. While it wasn't a knockdown dragout fight like a lot of transfer pricing cases we've covered, it's still a lesson for M&Es and tax authorities around the globe. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Ednaldo Silva, CEO of Royalty Stat. And on this episode, we're examining the inclusion of developing countries in the OECD guidelines and the specific challenges that arise around this effort. Now, Dr. Silva, thank you so much for being with us on today's show. Tell us a little bit just to catch up where about where you're located and what's happening there in terms of COVID-19. Well, I'm located in Bethesda, which is about four and a half miles from the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Our office has been closed since March, so everyone is working remotely from home. Before the cold weather hit us, I was riding three, four times a week my e-bike to the Lincoln Memorial and the mall. So the... COVID has not affected us as a nuclear family very much. It has brought us some advantages, such as working with my wife in the same spot and having the ability to have lunch together. So it has brought us closer physically. In terms of developments of COVID at the macro level, you know you know as much as I do. We have a change in uh, regimes and we have the expectation of having a change in government policy with respect to public health. So we have quite a bit of relief. Otherwise, I think that you are very close to me and we have a lot of information online. So I I do not have much to add here. No, I I understand. It's a very similar situation in New York. And we also had Barbara Montagani, who's also in the area, talk to us on the show about the situation uh, vis-a-vis COVID-19. But just to take a, a step back, I know we've probably asked you some variant of this question. I know at our Sarasota summits on or off the podcast, but you have a very storied place in this industry. You've had a very big impact to... <laughs> 
to to give an understatement on on how we think of of transfer pricing, especially in the United States. So you probably understand this industry from bef- far before it was on anybody else's radar, even even where we come to think of it in the last fifteen to twenty years. But even before then, what drew you to transfer pricing as something you might be interested in? By happenstance, I saw. An advertisement in the Wall Street Journal about markup pricing, and I applied for that position and got it. So this was in the third quarter of 1988. So I have been uh, practicing transfer pricing for quite uh, uh, quite a long time. Of course, of course. And I know we've asked you some variation of this uh, as of a, a couple of years ago when we had you last on the show, but I think there's been ample opportunity to make new observations in, in this area. But what mistakes do you see multinational companies making repeatedly? Well, I have to make a distinction between mistakes and bias. And I, I recall an expression attributed to Goethe, to Goethe, you know, the uh, German uh, poet, uh, that if you make a mistake once, it is it may be a tragedy, but if you make more than once, it becomes a farce. So as a result, I don't believe that the tax administrators of multinational corporations are engaged in a farce. So as a result, I'm going to to withdraw the expression mistakes, but they do have a biased position a tendentious position. And here, bias has a very technical meaning. It is a deviation from an, a desired or established position. So, and, and this biased, and bias incidentally, is a position that has no place in science. It has no place in a fair discourse. So to claim that there is a biased position is to establish or to claim also, you know, that there is a position of inequity that exists here between the taxpayers and the, the, the corporate taxpayers and the tax authority. So I think that the bias is expressed in an aggressive attitude, disrespectful attitude to the tax authority, because aggression Act of aggression is an act of disrespect to the counterparty. And this is expressed in two subcategories. One is steady, mischaracterization of related party transactions. And here we have a very unfortunate situation happening. In the United States, and I think it's becoming global, in which we have a high fraction of intelligent lawyers and accountants and economists supporting biased position and taking positions that I regard as intellectually dishonest. So, so mischaracterization of the transaction is a sign of the biased. And the other one is the selection of wrong comparables. I mean, comparables that cannot, in any concept of uh, economic understanding, in any sense of economic understanding, can be deemed to be comparables to, to the related party transactions. 
And I don't think you'd be alone in in claiming that the field of economics is rife with biases that are intellectually dishonest. I think you'd be far from alone in, in, in that claim. So I'm sure others in, in our audience uh, have some idea of what you're talking about, if only from experience. Now, just turning to the subject of today's show, we say developing countries. And obviously, this is a very, very loaded term, whether or not we're getting into official definitions. But maybe let's establish one for the purposes of this program, what is an official definition we can use in which that designation applies to the countries we're going to discuss today? The official definition of developing, underdeveloped, emerging countries is based on level of income. And we have three types or three groups of countries depending on levels of income. For our purpose, we can talk about uh, two types of uh, countries, low-income countries, and uh, these are countries uh, in which the per capita income measured in, U- in current U.S. dollars is up to $12,000 per year. And then you have high-income countries, or countries in which the level of per capita income is equal to or exceeds 12000 So obviously these groups are amorphous with respect to many attributes. What to me characterizes developing countries is the level of massive unemployment. What happens is that even though economic statistics masks the level of unemployment in rich countries or high-income countries, and we have uh, countries in Europe that are considered to be rich, but in which the level of unemployment is uh, 20% or around 20%, but we don't see misery because of the social programs that exist. In developing countries, invariably, the level of unemployment is 25-30% of the working populations. So for me as an economist, the way to, to deal with these kinds of countries is to have the kinds of economic policies that are applicable to depressed economies. But unfortunately, we are all colonized by U.S. university education, which imposes a kind of thinking that is applicable to special cases in in rich or developed countries in which full employment applies. So this is really the big conundrum that we have. So, So the short answer to your question is that Developing countries are countries with low level of income, up to $12,000 per head per year, and that is characterized by massive unemployment. Where we talk about wealthier countries that have basically abject full employment, is this kind of what's meant by in, you know, quote unquote, the developed world, unemployment is a figure, but that might better represent folks who end up having to work two jobs or are overemployed. Is that sort of what you mean? Like developed countries are, are countries with, with those kinds of employment problems rather than in developing countries, you know, if you're unemployed, you are, you know, absolutely subject to the poverty line and below. Hey, you, you were destitute so that families yeah. are, you know, are broken, all kinds of psychological, uh, they suffer all kinds of economic and subsequent uh, psychological distress. And that is by far the the high frequency of the population. And I just saying that I, I know that speaking with me, we often go off script. But, you know, I mean, what I find disgraceful, you know, as a trained economist, is that all of this is a result of policy. 
It doesn't yeah. have to be that way. You know, it's a choice that we, I'm not including myself in this with, you know, that elite thinking has imposed, you know, because poverty today is completely inexcusable. Definitely plays into what you were saying before about the, you know, kinds of thinking promoted in U.S. universities and gets reinforced in a kind of groupthink way by academia that comes from these institutions. But most developing countries don't have transfer pricing requirements just to at least set that stage. And of course, it's difficult to start anything from scratch. We've put a finger on this dynamic just as much as we can in, in these first few minutes of the show. But put us in the shoes of these countries, if you can. What are usually like the main or major barriers to entry for developing countries starting transfer pricing regimes? Okay. So in one of the documents, I think we'll discuss uh, later, there is a chart that shows that 80 countries have transfer pricing regimes of one sort or another. So, you know, that's about 59% of the 135 countries that are members of the inclusive framework of the OECD. So that is a substantial fraction. The, the major challenge, you may be surprised by this, the major challenge that these countries face is to acquiesce you know, to the OECD mandate. And here, let me say something that you may find unusual. What happens is that increasingly, we as citizens who have become taxpayers are subject to decisions made by officials who are not elected, by officials who are either appointed for example, secretaries of treasury, secretaries of uh, labor, etc., but also by uh, people who are employees or, or members of international organizations. You know, so I think that the biggest challenge that countries have is the need to be part of an economic system that is worldwide, but at the same time to to subject its local executive, judiciary, and legislative bodies to international mandates of people who have no understanding and no stakes except as tax collectors in a broader sense of the word. So this is what I think is the major, major uh, challenge. Many of these countries that may not have transfer pricing regimes do have rules that cover intercompany transactions, but they are not rules under the Magna Carta or the mandate or the OECD language. Of course. And I mean, it just with, you know, everything you were saying, at least giving an idea of, of the challenges that are faced by these officials, there's there's kind of a reverse brain drain problem just in terms of having the know-how of how the international system works on the ground in these countries to start these offices and have that infrastructure. And of course, in January 2020, the platform for collaboration on tax released a toolkit for developing countries entitled Practical Toolkit to support the successful implementation by developing countries of effective transfer pricing documentation requirements. Unfortunately, that doesn't boil down to a fun sounding acronym. So we have to read it the full way out. But what does the toolkit aim to do? How does it help developing countries with no legislation in place? It aims to 
summarize a series of events that must be followed to be part of this international tax community. And I can recall six or seven objectives or aims. One is to establish international consistency with the OECD standard, which, as I have said before, is a US standard. Two is to make sure that there are primary laws dealing with related party transactions. And here I go beyond transfer pricing because it also involves uh, thin capitalization rules. Although the document that we were referring to doesn't mention thin capitalization, it mentions related party transactions with respect to the transfer of tangible goods, the provision of services, the, or the transfer of intangibles. But to establish international consistency, to establish primary laws that are conforming uh, with the OECD uh, rules, to establish exchange of information rules, so that one of the requirements that's expected, which is a country-by-country -country report, can be shared between tax jurisdiction, to clarify burdens of proof with respect to the corporate taxpayer or the tax administration. The document is very concerned with confidentiality or the respect for confidentiality and uh, here I really part company, but I'm not going to go there at this stage. Fair uh, enough. So six, the importance of establishing penalties for omissions, for misinformation, for failure to fulfill a required data, for incorrect returns, for failure to maintain uh, adequate uh, transfer pricing documentation. And seventh is its simplification and exemption for small and medium-sized enterprises. So if I were to put all these seven items, there are more, but uh, you know, these seven items that I found to be highlighted, international consistency, primary law, exchange of information rules, burden of proof, confidentiality, penalties and simplifications and uh, an exemption, I would, I would sing that lovely rhythm and blues, the thrill is gone. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm uh, free from your spell. I mean, there is nothing <laughs> new here. Huh? Right, what, it, right. And, and what is, what is uh, uh, so the, the thrill is really gone. And as I said, uh, you know, I, I'm free from the spell. What is interesting is that here we have a cavalry descending on developing countries constituted by four major bodies. The IMF, which cannot play a leading role here because the IMF is historically a bad cop for developing countries. The IMF is the imposer of conditionality rules, of austerity rules, to make sure that this so-called debt is, uh, is serviced that the debt is, is so-called service, that interest is paid on the debt. So the interest of the IMF and this group of four is, in my view, primarily to make sure that there is enough tax revenue in these countries to pay the foreign debt. I mean, that's the main interest. And then we have the fellow travelers, the World Bank. And the World Bank, as you know, was historically the the bank 
that invested in infrastructure to make sure that developing countries were integrated in the world system. Since a lot of infrastructure has been built, they are like bastard children. Yeah. But they are, they are there because they are part of the Troika that imposes conditionality and austerity whenever countries cannot service their debt. Then we have the UN, which is the wonder child has lost its place. It is today data collection, but even data collection is being taken over by the OECD. You know, so it's a falling, rapidly falling star right. uh, without a, a clear role to play in the economic world, economic system. And then we have the OECD, which is an ascending star because the OECD does not have the burden of the IMF, you know, the very bad reputation right. of the IMF. It does not have the you know, equally, but not, but more discreet reputation of the World Bank. So the, so the OECD is playing the role of building cohesive forces, of being the intellectual monitor of, of this process. So it is very confusing if you are a tax administration in a developing country because you face the OECD with rules. You have the UN competing, similar but competing rules, you have the World Bank barking at their doors and you have uh, you know, the IMF also being part of this uh, gang of four. It's, so it's very confusing. The document per se is repetitive, inelegant. There is nothing new, as I said. There are no thrills. Right. So I don't have much positive to say because I only expect <laughs> further, further confusion. And just interrupting very briefly, everyone, for a quick moment for our first CPE code word, and that code word is bank, is in the World Bank. Returning to our conversation. Well, I will say my background in, in global policy, uh, you reflect a position of skepticism about these international institutions. But just to extrapolate from there, it seems as though that the purpose of this is to mainly try to get developing countries on board principally with country by country reporting. You mentioned that there's this show, you know, we've seen this show before, but that really seems to be the purpose of it here. Is that is that too cynical a view? No, I think it's correct. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're going to, to, to summarize, that is the minimal requirement. And I mean, right. that, you know, they mentioned four, but that is the only, to my knowledge, the only minimal requirement that they keep insisting. Right, right, right. This reminds me of my, my high school class president asking me what I'm doing the day after Thanksgiving. Like, oh, I know where this is going. He wants me to show up for the reunion. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd.
just looking at this toolkit, there obviously is good intention here, trying to take everybody on good faith. What does the toolkit mean for multinationals? What should they expect? Well, I think it's it's a sign of relief for multinationals that uh, you know uh, we have a consonance of views by you know uh, two partners that have been in camera and uh, they are they are now part of the front room, namely the World Bank and the IMF, because the UN has been playing second fiddle to the OECD in matters of transfer pricing for quite some time. I think that people at the UN had the aspiration of becoming the spoken, you know, the voice of developing countries and the OECD, the voice of uh, a club of rich countries, but they recognize soon enough that in a dichotomous world was dichotomous view, you know, you either ascribe to the views of the dominant force or you become heretic. So, you know, they became uh, nullity because they cannot really expound the views of developing countries without falling into heretic positions. So right. I think for tax administrators of uh, multinationals, it is relieving you know, to see that they have two whipping boys coming to to the rescue to establish this common uh, language by the two whipping boys. I mean, one is really a nasty whipping boy, and that right. is the IMF. It should be called AMF, you know, A for austerity. And I think, you know, we were talking about the heart of the matter here being getting developing countries on board with with country by country reports specifically. But inevitably, of course, this is going to mean increased documentation requirements, uh, countries either adopting regimes close to or completely in line with OECD's BEPS Action 13. To what extent do you think multinationals should be preparing on those fronts? Well, it is correct what you're saying, but uh, this has already been anticipated by the BEPS Action 13, the country right. by country report. So that is a reality. So if any tax jurisdiction wants to have access to that important document, which uh, can be used you know, to, to, to find uh, candidates for audit, you have to, you know, you have to comply with the, the terms of the of the OECD. So I think that, again, this document serves to, to say that country by country comes with a series of auxiliary institutions or, or rules among those that I have, the seven that I have listed. I mean, there are more, but those were the ones that came to mind. So I don't believe that this implies any further burden for, for multinationals. But it does imply now that we have an obligation on the part of the multinationals to prepare this uh, country by country. And you can, you, you can already imagine that it would be one of the uh, conditionalities of the, of the IMF if countries fail to, you know, to, to pay the interest on the debt, that they are fulfilling the obligation of having an institution that administers uh, country by country reporting. Of course. And then it comes down to the matter of enforcement. Is there a particular set of scenarios or challenges that countries incur in those first years of of actually enforcing these rules that is provided for in the toolkit or otherwise? Well, there is the issue of the penalties. 
you know, which is which is I think is the insistence on penalties is uh, no, maybe that is the only thrill that or a little thrill, <laughs> you know, that is coming. And I think it is a preamble, you know, to this enforcement or repressive apparatus. And and here, let me say to you as a footnote that there there are. There are two organizations of states in developing countries that are well organized, that are, that are well, should I say, that, that have a semblance of enduring institutions. You know, one is the military and the other one is the tax authorities. You know, so for example, a few years ago, I went to a transfer pricing meeting in South Africa in Johannesburg, and I met tax authorities from different countries in Africa, and they are impressive. You know, yeah. so the idea that we have, you know, that, that the tax organized administration in these countries are, have a low capacity, I think it's, it's misinformed. Of and course. For example, you know, I mean, uh, South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, you know, these are very sophisticated tax administrations and they have an important, well, a discerning sense of, of countries. And even though, as I have said, you know, they have this Faustian a soul, you know, one is right. forever departing from the other. You know, one wants to be part of the OECD, but on the other, one does not want to relegate uh, local rules to a group of bureaucrats, you know, sitting in Paris, you know, uh, or sitting in Washington, D.C. at the IMF or the World Bank. You know, so that is a soul-searching activity. And interrupting very briefly for our second CPE code word, and that code word is industrialized, as in medium industrialized countries, otherwise known as developing countries, as they sometimes get phrased in international organizations and NGOs. Returning to our conversation, I think you really highlight just how fraught and loaded the term developing countries can be. We're about to bring up Colombia and, you know, to represent them as, as a developing country in a colloquial context with regard to any of their neighbors, that like that, that's a stark contrast as opposed to when you're talking about Colombia on the world stage and a, a lot gets lost with where we're putting the microscope or the telescope for that matter uh, before I get too lost in analogies. But it, for what we're seeing in terms of, you know, those challenges in, in terms of implementation, what are the challenges for transfer pricing executives doing transfer pricing in developing countries, especially uh, in the capacity that these countries will have to investigate or that these countries will be in a, in a position to investigate multinationals? Yes. Well, I think the biggest uh, challenge is venues for for dispute resolution. Right. Because, and here I'm going to give my impression, you know, it's not a position that has been studied, a result of, uh, of study. And here my view is clouded, but by my Brazilian upbringing, because of the fear of corruption, Tax administrations are not given leeway to, to negotiate. It's, it's a very, very different contrast to the United States in which the exam division has a lot of latitude to negotiate a tax position with, the, with, with corporations. And if that fails, you have an appeals division. And if that mm -hmm. fails, you, know, you have the court system to, to settle uh, disputes but only a few cases get to that level. 
but there is a substantial discretion at the level of the exam to, to resolve disputes with respect to how you characterize the transaction, how you select the comparables, how you select the method, uh, etc. When you go to developing countries, the tax administrations don't have this kind of latitude. So they have an enforcement role without a uh, negotiating role. And I think this is going to be very complex for the OECD to establish or to impose uh, uh, rich country rules in an environment that has uh, built historically protective belts against corruption at the level of the tax administration. And one of the elements of the protective belt is not to allow the tax collector or the tax administrator to make deals. Right. You know, so everything's statutory. And I think that the OECD must, and not only the OECD, but I think that tax administration of corporations have this, this problem because I think that's the most frustrating, the most frustrating thing of uh, dealing with tax administration in developing countries is their inability uh, to negotiate and the inexistence of venues in which one can show discord to the tax administration except in court proceedings. And court proceedings are primarily legal, legal proceedings. You know, it's not really, they, they are not designed as they are designed in the United States in which there is a lot of discovery and fact gathering and there is a lot of dispute over, over what is fact and what is fiction. So I think this is the most challenging aspect of disseminating uh, OECD rules in which this document is a practical toolkit to make mm -hmm. sure that these rules are implemented. So the most challenging aspect to both corporations and the gang of four is to how are you going to relax the local rules to prevent corruption by disabling negotiating and appeals provisions and uh, allow these flexibilities to exist. And interrupting one final time for our third and final CPE code word, and that is dimensional, as in the multi-dimensional clustering system, a classification for developing countries used by a number of international organizations. Returning to our conversation, I know we were talking a bit about this dynamic before in terms of the enforcement, but I think maybe a question on everyone's mind at this point might be, what about the lack of local comparables and how that's going to impact audits? How, how do you see this or how have you seen this play out in terms of, of transfer pricing history? Well, I like your question because it's very, it's very pointed. You know, it is clear that we are going to move to a terrain of uh, safe harbors. It is clear that the concept of arm's length based on comparables is defunct. And only uh, people who have no experience in audit, you know, can be Talmudic about it. So I think we are going to, we are going to move to a regime, in fact, you know, that is prevailing developing countries, which is a regime of limits to deduction. You know, for example, if you have intercompany interest payment, there is a limit. If you have uh, intercompany royalty payments, there is a limit. 
of deduction. If you have intercompany management fees, you have a limit to the to deduction, or the regime of safe harbors, which Brazil already has. They call presumed profit. You know, it's an alternative regime, uh, which says that if you're going to be a distributor, and here they don't. It doesn't matter if you are if you are foreign owned or domestic owned. You know, you have to produce eight percent of your revenue as profit, as taxable profit. So it's a regime of safe harbors, a regime which they call a presumed profit. So I think we are going to move away from searching for comparables, and maybe we'll have uh, the regime of comparables as if you have it, we use it. If you don't have it, we we use a default which is the safe harbors. It's going to be very interesting, of course, to, to see it all play out. I, I know I mentioned before that Colombia just became the 37th member of the OECD and is considered a developing country. What can other developing countries learn from its transfer pricing regulation implementation process as it's been kind of a current event story over the last uh, year or so? What are the key takeaways? Well, I'm not uh, so familiar with the implementation of the OECD guidelines in Colombia, except to say in very general terms, you know, that, well, Colombia is a country of about 50 million people with a per capita income of $6,000 per year or $6,500 per year. So, you know, it's a towards uh, mid-income, um, low-income countries. But, you know, Colombia has a history of acquiescing with international rules. Huh? I mean, Colombia for a long time acquiesced to, to U.S. foreign yep. policy in which it equated, it accepted this phony equation in which any kind of public discontentment is equated to, to drug trafficking. And right. uh, it, it, it accepted the U.S., you know, like Mexico, and it's not coincidental that uh, Mexico, Chile, and uh, Colombia in Latin America were the first countries to be part of, of this regime because they have histories of acquiescing to, you know, they are smaller countries. I mean, Mexico is not small. Right. I mean, you know, Mexico had a revolution. And if you go to Mexico uh, and you go to other countries in Latin America, you know that Mexico had a revolution. It is uh, distinct. It has lost a lot of its way, you know, but... My point is that it is easier in places that have a history of cooperation, farcical cooperation, cooperation or, or truthful cooperation with international regimes of oppression, you know, which to me is what the OECD represents. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing 
software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions' AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of Cross-Border Solutions' transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp thank you very much dr silva that was a very insightful discussion but before we close we have time for my favorite part of the show you're probably familiar we call it what we want to know we put our transfer pricing expert in the hot seat for a rapid fire round of questions but always question one is are you ready well, as I see, <laughs> what is a secret skill or talent you have? So if I tell you, it it would cease being uh, being secret. Yes, but, uh, this uh, this is the nature of the show. <laughs> okay. So so I'll tell you uh, a joke that I heard several times as a student of economics about Joseph Schumpeter. You know, he was a very well known uh, economist who emigrated to from Austria to the United States and was a member of this exile kind of group, although he preceded the exiles. And he said he had three objectives in life. One was to be a great economist. Two was to be a great horseman. And the three was to be a great lover. And uh, he failed uh, uh, in one and was successful only in two. Since being a horseman is no longer fashionable, and being a great lover is no longer, it has become a, a quaint or even old fashioned. My secret is that of becoming a competent economist. And I, I believe that uh, it's difficult to be, but I believe that I, I, I have become one. Many more competent economists may, may leave this program with that same advice. What is a principle of transfer pricing that can be applied to other areas of life, do you feel? It's the uh, principle of parity, you know, tax parity, which is enumerated with the principle of sufficiently similar, of uh, comparables, the principle that if you have controlled transactions and you have motives and uh, vehicles for self-dealing, you must be obliged to, to pay taxes in an amount that is similar to, to those that do not have those objectives and uh, those vehicles. So I think that the principle of uh, parity can uh, be applied to many aspects of, of, of life. It can apply to our relationships with our spouses. It can apply to our relationship with our co-workers. It can apply to our relationship with our children. And this is very challenging when we live in an environment that's asymmetric, you know, that is yeah. uh, disparate in which it was a lot of inequity. So this is a um, parity is a, um, you know, it's, it's a objective, a goal, an ideal, a dream that is, you know, that we can apply to other aspects of life. 
Yes, yes. I remember you speaking very eloquently about parity as a philosophical value of yours also present in the discipline when we were in Sarasota last. And if I can even tie this back into everything you were saying about the OECD, your view, your I think I've described it as a as more OECD skeptic or global skeptic view. It might do well for the organization to consider more parity in its relations with countries around the world. But Turning to a, a far uh, less serious question, what is your most used emoji? I don't have any. <laughs> it might be the space in that case. Yes, <laughs> the, the, the most universal emoji. Uh, what, what keeps you coming back to transfer pricing year after year? Well, it's, it's, it's a complex area that is destitute of academic discipline. And that is what I find most appealing. I mean, that, that is one side that I find appealing, which is a side of, here I'm going to use an expression of, of members of the Lincoln Brigade, uh, who were Americans who went to fight on the side of the Republic and the Spanish Civil War. And when I went to New York in 1982, you know, I met several of them. It is the idea of fighting the good fight of making sure whether I'm representing a taxpayer or representing the, the, the government that the rules uh, with respect to the parity of tax reporting are followed. So that to me, you know, being part of the good fight, you know, is, uh, you know, is uh, the most enduring enduring side of it and that is what makes me uh, come back to it i mean the other side is that as i said is destitute of rules of of economic rules statistical rules so you know i i put myself on a pedagogical role and this area my blog is pedagogical i insist that this notion that i hear quite a bit not by economists, but by lawyers, that I find unacceptable, that economics is more of an art than a science. I find it unacceptable because art is very technical. It is so technical that one can find a large number of good, competent economists, but to put together a large number of good and competent artists is very difficult. So art is immensely more complex, more difficult to achieve than economics. So people who say, well, economics is more of an art in a science, they, they don't know the history of art. They don't know how technical the subject is. I think what they mean is that it is wishy-washy. It right. is subjective. take all, it's subjective. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, so I have this, you know, this side of fighting a good fight and the other side is bringing intellectual discipline, bringing intellectual honesty, you know, to, to the discourse. And, uh, you know, since, since transfer pricing is destitute of the two, of these two attributes, uh, you know, I'm very happy to, to keep going to it, but to be, to be a member of this community. I would love to do a podcast, but it would have to be its own podcast on why calling economics and by proxy transfer pricing into art, not a science, 
says some weird things about art, but I think that I, I might have to pitch that for a Christmas show during a week where we don't have anything important to do because I don't know if our if if my superiors <laughs> would would find that uh, the most pressing issue for our audience. But if I do get that passed, you're gonna I'm gonna call you first, Doctor Silva. Thank you. We want to thank Dr. Silva for joining us on today's show. We want to thank everyone at home for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify if you haven't already. While you're there, don't forget to check out our growing suite of podcasts. There is our short-form sister podcast. That's the Fiona Show Hot Off the Press, where we go over transfer pricing reg changes and headlines from across the world in under 10 minutes. There's also Fiona's R&D Tax Credit Podcast brand new, just in case you thought you weren't getting the most out of your R&D tax credit. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they let me host, edit, and engineer this program out of the kindness of their hearts. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Stay safe out there, everyone. Wear a mask, and we will catch you next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.